taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Roman, Montana, we're bringing to you the Word of the Lord. This uh, week, we're looking at Proverbs 21, 31, which says, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. Taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of Christian apologetics while taking the truth into the arena of ideas. This is the Bellator Christie Podcast. My name is Curtis Evelo, and I'm joined by Brian Chilton as we answer your most pressing apologetic theological questions of the day. Good day, y'all. Well, we've been praying for you, praying that this last uh, last podcast, last set of podcasts uh, um, bless you and uh, have uh, have helped you um, see where, where maybe uh, some sort of a Molinistic uh, mindset actually fits into uh, a good worldview. Uh, for us as we uh, as we try to navigate uh, the scriptures and navigate uh, our Christian walk so but hey we're uh, we're getting rolling on our uh, interview summer that we have I really don't have a name for it right now just we're just gonna call it the interview summer maybe I don't know <laughs> anyway but uh, <laughs> but uh, that's all due because uh, Brian Chilton is uh, is actually working closer and closer to his dissertation and uh, Let's go ahead and welcome on Brian. How's that going, Brian? Well, you know, I'm honored to be working on this, and I'm also honored to have one of the committee members for my dissertation with us today, Dr. Ronnie Campbell. So, so it's a distinct honor and privilege for me to have him on with us. Well, it's a privilege to be here, Brian. Thanks so much. Uh, thank you, and Curtis, for allowing me to just to be a part of this uh, podcast of yours. So, so we want to introduce yeah, you. You're, you're the Associate Professor of Theology at Liberty University's Rawlings School of Divinity. Uh, Dr. Campbell was my professor of natural theology, and what a wonderful class that was. But I have to tell you, we read through some books that were probably some of the most technical reads. I mean, we had like Boolean logic or something like that in some of, some of those books. <laughs> And so uh, he has a Ph.D. in theology and apologetics from Liberty University and is passionate about training others to think biblically and theologically about life. Uh, he has contributed articles uh, to, um, um, what was it, Fervernet? Fervor.net? F-E-R-V-R.net? Right, yeah, it's a youth ministry website. Yeah. And also moralapologetics.com, Baggett Army running strong there, a website dedicated to the moral argument for the existence of God. Uh, His scholarly work has appeared in academic journals, and he has contributed articles to such books as When the Lights Go Down, uh, Movie Review as Christian Practice and Unshakable, uh, Following Jesus in Your Teens and Beyond, he lives in Gladys, Virginia, with his wife Debbie and four children, and so it is a great honor and privilege to welcome on Dr. Ronnie Campbell. Uh, thanks so much. It's a privilege to be here, Brian. Thanks. So, as we also, as we often ask our first-time guests, which we hope and pray this will be the first of many uh, podcasts that you're on with us, uh, could you describe how you first came to accept Christ as your Savior? Sure, I'd be glad to. Uh, you know. 
I was one of those kids. Uh, I remember going to church ever since I was a little boy. Uh, and uh, my dad would take me to church. And I, I would go every Sunday, every Wednesday, and every Sunday night. And I, I had heard the gospel so many times. Um, but it was at a church camp in, in Cowan, West Virginia, uh, that I, I went. And I just noticed that the people there, I was probably about 12 years old. And uh, the people were there were just different. I saw something in them, and I wanted that same thing they had. And uh, it was just so impactful on me. On me. And so uh, one night at a Vesper service while we were at church camp, I remember uh, just being there and uh, getting the gospel, getting this idea that Jesus died for me, and a light bulb went off. And, you know, I don't remember who was doing the sermon. I don't remember anything else. Uh, but I just remember getting that and uh, realizing that Jesus was my Savior, uh, that he had died for my sins. And cool. and so I, uh, you know, I didn't say anything to anyone and uh, went back home to West Virginia uh, to my small church. And uh, about two weeks later, I decided to go talk to my pastor and, uh, you know, uh, was uh, doing the the thing that we're supposed to do next uh, in our discipleship and get baptized. And so I got baptized and that's when I really began to see, uh, you know, my spiritual life just take off. Uh, God began to do uh, many things in my life, just convicting me of sin, uh, you know, giving me a hunger and, and a longing to, to really know his word. Um, and, and, you know, God's been working in me ever since, you know, uh, so it's not any uh, extravagant testimony, but it is a, a, a beautiful thing that God has, has worked in my heart and uh, saw, you know, I saw the truth of who God is and, and um, you know, Christ's love for me. And so that that's basically my testimony in a nutshell. And uh, he's, you know, he's not finished with me yet. He's got a lot of work still to do. So. <laughs> hey, that's a beautiful testimony. What, what part of West Virginia were you from? A uh, little small town called Oak Hill, and uh, and uh, it's uh, right near the New River Gorge Bridge. Uh, oh, so that's a beautiful, that one, beautiful area. Yeah, I was probably 15 minutes away from the uh, New River Gorge Bridge, and uh, um, I usually say Beckley because most people yeah. drive through Beckley. <laughs> but yeah, it's a small town there. Um I'm actually very familiar with Beckley. That's a beautiful, beautiful area. <laughs> oh yeah, I love it. it it's so gorgeous. Uh, driving, it, I tell you, driving in the fall, it's the best. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> that that gorge, that bridge you're talking about. If I'm not mistaken, it's like a couple hundred feet down, right? Yeah, it's 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 up there. Uh, at one time, it was the longest single spanned arc bridge in the world. Um, right. I think uh, recently, uh, somewhere across the world, someone built one uh, a little longer. So, <laughs> yeah. people used to go base jumping. For, I guess they still do base jumping from it, don't they? Yeah, they parachute off of it and uh, base jump. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I, I won't be doing that though. <laughs> I won't either. <laughs> I'll be I'll be holding the handbags while Curtis goes over. <laughs> no way, man. <laughs> Perfectly good bridge. Why would anybody jump off it? <laughs> <laughs> so. Well, Dr. Campbell, you recently wrote a book uh, called For Love of God, An Invitation to Theology, which is fantastic, a fantastic book. Um, 
what is the primary aim of the book and and who is your intended audience? Yeah, Brian, this was the first book I ever wrote. And, uh, you know, I just woke up one morning and rarely does something like this happen, but I just woke up one morning and I said, that's the book I need to write. (laughs) (laughs) And and so I had a specific audience in mind when I wrote it. Um, You know, I, I had just started adjunct teaching at Liberty, and I think I'd gone through a couple semesters of doing that, and um, I, I, I taught honor sections, and, and, and in the honor sections at Liberty, most of the students there are not divinity majors, they're not, uh, they're not students getting a degree in pastoral studies or in, in theology or Bible, um, and, and so uh, I really wanted them to see why theology is important. And so, uh, you know, in this aha moment, I woke up and said, that's the book I need to write. And, and it was like 10 reasons why everyone should study theology. Because I really wanted these students to see that theology is not just something for, you know, academics. It's not just something for people who are studying divinity, but really it's for everyone. And, and so hence the name, um, you know, uh, for love of God, an invitation to theology. So it's an invitation. It's it's really not a systematic theology. It's not a, you know, it, it goes into some depth, but it's it's really not meant to do what a systematic theology textbook does. It's really meant to say, hey, look, this is why you need to study theology. <laughs> and so I try to give a layout 10 reasons, and, and that's kind of the premise behind the book. But, uh, you know, it's not just for students. And, and really, I wrote it for a lay audience as well, you know, people who aren't pastors um, and anyone who's interested in studying theology. And that's kind of the gist behind it. Absolutely. And it's, and it's a wonderful book. And, and you know, even though, like you say, it's, it's covers some deep issues, I, I found it easy to read. It's, it's very relatable to individuals and a v- very good work from top to bottom. Thank you. I appreciate that. So in the first chapter, you discuss theologizing, making theology everything, and the importance of (laughs) intellectualism to the task of theology. And you further note that uh, everything is theological. Can you explain what you mean by everything is theological or theologizing or however you say that? (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, it's interesting. Um, I remember the first time I heard that phrase. Now, that is not my own. Um, uh, a guy by the name of Mark Eckel, who was one of my teachers at Moody, would say that everything's theological, you know. <laughs> and so, so that was kind of the premise here, uh, just to kind of kick off the book, uh, theologizing everything. And, and really, if you think about it, anything that has significance and meaning in this life comes down to a theological question. Everything, right? I mean, whether there is such a being as God, um, even uh, certain things like who should I vote for or who should I marry? I mean, we think about one of the fundamental principles that we see in Scripture, which is, uh, you know, the lordship of God, the lordship of Christ. Everything belongs to him. You know, you, you think uh, about the psalm that says the, the earth is the Lord's and all that that's within it, right? So everything belongs to the Lord. So every relationship that I engage in, 
even every idea that I think, mm -hmm. I have to have that framework of this belongs to the Lord. Mm -hmm. How can I shape myself to put everything under the Lordship of Christ? And so really, I mean, when we talk about theologizing everything or everything is theological, um, that's what we mean. Everything comes down to a theological question, or at least, I mean, you know, these significant issues. And the earth belongs to the Lord. I belong to the Lord. You belong to the Lord. You know, and, and even, uh, even our relationships, how we're to relate to others. I mean, even our relationship to this earth, how we're to, to think about God's creation. This is not my, you know, this is not my space. This is really God's creation. Everything belongs to him. So, so that's kind of the main idea there. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. So I was going to ask then. So it, we're we're actually looking at the world through uh, a theology lens and how and how our world functions within that. Then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, if you think about it, uh, even atheists, uh, you know, um, make theological conclusions. Right. Uh, for them, there is no God. Uh, for us, there is a God. You know, a secularist. You know, a secularist might say, well, sure, there might be a God, but really this God doesn't make much difference in my life. But what you do with God is is fundamental uh, in, in how you approach life. Mm -hmm. and, and and so when we think about um, this this uh, I idea here and, and how it should permeate every aspect mm -hmm. of who we are, every aspect of our being, uh, it really is... Uh, you know, it, just let that sink in, you know, <laughs> just let, just kind of breathe that in. Oh my goodness. I, I stand before God and, you know, everything uh, about mm -hmm. me stands before God and, and so forth. That's good. And, and I like what you said about how we relate to creation. Um, I'm a big astronomy nerd, not astrology, but astronomy <laughs> nerd. And um, my wife... Yeah, right. <laughs> My wife, I'm glad that you clarified that. Yeah. <laughs> but my wife bought me these uh, Celestron Astro Binoculars, which are these huge binoculars, and it picks up light you know, in the universe. And it's amazing because there's an app on my phone and which shows where certain objects are, and there's this cluster of 20-some galaxies in this one region of the sky, and I was able to see them with those binoculars, and it just overwhelmed me that God created all of this. I mean, even these massive galaxies dotting the sky, that, that it's, it's really overwhelming if you really stop and consider what you just said about how, we, how everything is theological in that aspect. Right, and this is not just like some, uh, you know, abstract Thing. I mean, this is this is real. I mean, you know, if you think about what Thomas Aquinas, his idea of creation, it's not just that God created ex nihilo and just kind of let the earth do its own, th you know, the world and universe do its own thing, but God is sustaining everything mm -hmm. in existence. His His power is sustaining everything. Right? You and me, our being, we owe our very existence to God. Um, right. You know, Colossians says that about Jesus that he is, you know, he's he's uh, holding all things to all things together here, mm -hmm. right? And so we think about that, and and just the, uh, uh, you know, what you're saying with these these clusters, right? These these galaxies, and and just the design that went into uh, the creation itself. But not only that, God is just holding all this together, mm -hmm. and 
we should just let that sink in. <laughs> you know, you think of uh, your finiteness, right? Uh, that we are finite creatures and, and how um, how much we just depend on God for our existence. Uh, Absolutely. Everything, bit, uh, everything, you know. <laughs> I was just kind of curious, Brian. So when you said that, I was like, I wonder what the largest galaxy is known in the universe. And it's uh, IC1101. It's uh, located almost a billion light years away. Wow. I wonder if that's yeah. observable in this hemisphere or the southern hemisphere. I, I don't know. It says uh, um, it's the largest galaxy that's ever been found in the observable universe. Uh, just how large is it? Uh, at its largest point, the galaxy extends about 2 million light years from its core and has a mass of about 100 trillion stars. Ooh, That's wow. insane. Think, think about that. That's, you know? So, yeah. I, I better move That's on because I can talk this all night. <laughs> I know. <laughs> In the second chapter, you discuss shaping a worldview, which is very, very important for, for each person. Can you define what a worldview is and the role that theology plays into its construction? Sure. I mean, worldviews are just basically the way in which we view the world. I and mean, it's those, uh, you know, those lenses, uh, we often hear that that um, metaphor used uh, about how we view the world. I actually have the definition, and I'd like to read it because I think it's quite a bit in that definition. Um, but I, here's, how, here's how I define it. Worldviews are interpretive grids con consisting of a variety of beliefs and attitudes by which people filter through the data from the world, allowing them to form a consistent and coherent view of reality in order to make sense of all of life. And so I really, you know, that first part, it, it's this grid. Um, it, you know, it, it encompasses all of our experiences, encompasses all of our beliefs, our, you know, propositional beliefs. Um, and, and some people want to just leave a worldview at that. It's, it just has to do with those propositional beliefs that we have. But I see it as much more than that. And I, I think I would agree with James Sire here that it also includes uh, those um, predispositions that we have. Our attitudes even affect how we accept or reject data from the world. Uh, and, and so it, it works as this filter to help us um, really just to make sense of all of life. And, and so that that's kind of how I see a world. And, um, you know, some people, we use that metaphor of the glasses, but J.P. Moreland, he, he kind of, he doesn't really like that definition. He, he warns against using that because, you know, you know, you think glasses, you could just take one set of glasses off and put another set of glasses on. Um, and, and those are, that's not really kind of how a, a worldview operates. Um, you know, because it has all of these experiences that we've had and all of these thoughts and so forth. And, and so I think, to me, it encompasses all those things. Um, and, and so I, I think that uh, just realizing that it includes all of those elements, I think. Mm. Absolutely. That's good. Yeah, so you're saying so you're saying we can instead of calling it like a biblical lens or a biblical world lens, worldview lens, we could say it as a uh, a, a, a filter, a biblical filter or a theological mm -hmm. filter that we that we absorb everything through, but everything gets filtered as it's coming through uh, that that particular worldview. Then, 
Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, worldviews are complex. Um, mm-hmm. y- you think about, I mean, we, we certainly want to have a, a worldview that conforms to Scripture and to God's Word. Um, I, I really like this idea of God's two books. You know, you have yeah. the book of Revelation, but you have the book of creation. And, yeah. and the, the thing is, or you have um, general revelation, which is what we see in, in creation and special mm-hmm. revelation. And, and uh, as far as um, special revelation, I think it's, it's through that we, we are to view uh, general revelation. Um, but, but I think that, again, getting back to this idea that, that worldviews are somewhat complex here, um, I, I think that um, philosophy influences our worldview as well as mm-hmm. science. Oh, yeah. I mean, think about um, just something as simple as uh, gravity, right? How, how has the concept of gravity transformed our way of thinking? And, and, and so in our society, we're, we're highly uh, uh, influenced by the scientific worldview. And so we always have to kind of check that against the biblical worldview and, uh, and, and try to conform ourselves to, to God's uh, way of seeing the world. Um, but we, we can't, um, you, know, you know, it's not that, that science or philosophy is unimportant or something like that. I mean, it, it, those, those are certainly important. And I think they also influence our worldviews. And, and really what we're aiming at is truth, ultimately. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of bringing both uh, you know, general revelation, special revelation, or or God's two books, and seeing the full picture of God's world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I take it that that all truth is God's truth, and so um, the the truth that's found in God's word is not going to contradict the truth that's found in God's world. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, these two should should come together. Right. You, you know, I, I discovered you know, and not going into anything about any of the discussion online. But just something I observed is fascinating is that it seems like, um, I, 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 well, just to go back, I saw, uh, reviewed a, a conversation that happened online, and there was the uh, whole discussion about the starting point. Where does the starting point for truth come? Does it start from Scripture or does it start from, from science? You know, it, it seemed like there were two different, very different starting points. Um how would you respond to that? You know, as far as a starting point goes, where where that foundation? I'm gonna, I'm a, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of twist it a little bit here and say, okay, do we begin with our thoughts on God? This is a this is a question that Kevin Van Hooser asked in First Theology. Do we begin with our thoughts on God, or do we begin with our thoughts on Scripture? Mm. Mm. And one of the things that Van Hooser does is he points out that you know actually you can have problems starting with either of those angles. Um, you have to have certain idea, uh, a certain idea or a certain concept of what God is like um, as you engage Scripture. Because you, know, you think of someone like, uh, you know, Rudolf Bultmeier or someone like that who denied uh, the, the, the idea, the, the Christian theistic understanding of God, right? Uh, probably more of a deist. Um, but, but uh, you know, he began with the, the starting point that God is not such that he could reveal himself. So if you're already beginning with this presupposition when yeah. you come to the scriptures, well, what's going to happen to the scriptures? Well, these are just nothing more than man-made. Um, you know, it, it's a way of trying to encapsulate these eternal principles uh, that we see shielded through the lens of myth or something like that, right? Yeah. And, and so, um, so I, I think that uh, you, 
got a nuance now. I mean, it's not just a, a black or white type of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we, we don't want to just uh, commit the, that, that fallacy there, right? Yeah. Uh, maybe it's more of a both and. And, and so I think when we, we look at the scriptures, we have, to, we have to come with this understanding. Well, God is such that he can reveal himself. Uh, but also we see the scriptures as God's word and so forth. And, and I think the, the, that same kind of principle can can be helpful as we think about the science and, and scripture um, debate is that, um, you know, God is is the author. He's the creator of both. And so there, you know, we, we have to even apply things like reason and, and rationality to the interpretation of scripture. So we don't just divorce ourselves from that. Right. Um, but also, I mean, we learn things from science, like we we're talking about gravity and so forth. And, and these things shape our worldview. Uh, the biblical writers, they didn't have a scientific worldview. Mm-hmm. So I guess back to that interpretive lens, well, how, you know, we, we look at them and, and how did they intend this scriptures? What were, what were their intentions when they were thinking through this? And, you know, how did the spirit inform? I mean, it's just a highly complex question. <laughs> And, and I don't know that it's a, you know, we can just say, oh, we'll start here, start there. Um, I, I think that we, we should be careful uh, when we get into to the sciences and not allow the scientific theory to dictate um, truth that we find in Scripture, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But, yeah. but I, I, I don't know if that was clear or if it actually no. Muddled the water more. <laughs> no, no, I thought it was very good. I thought it was a very balanced and very, very well done. Curtis, any follow up? <laughs> what do you say? Very well balanced. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, so I guess you know uh, through that we we can always filter, um, like like what you're saying, the science through whatever worldview lens we want to hold so then the mm-hmm. so then the the outcome could be tremendously different between whatever worldview that you hold and whatever filter you're filtering that through yeah uh, that that's exactly right yeah i mean i think worldview assumptions come into play here when we talk about science and we talk about uh scripture you know uh, your worldview can influence both of those and, and so what we really want is for God's word to influence our world. Yeah. You absolutely. know, and, and also we want God's word to influence how we understand science, uh, you know, uh, but, but at the same time, you know, we, there can be some uh, movement back and forth. Uh, you know, we think of uh, just, um, you, you know, again, our example of gravity, how that's it, because, you know, it, it doesn't seem wrong, you know, and so we have to kind of, uh, that that becomes a part of our worldview now. It becomes a part of the way, the way in which we see mm-hmm. the world and so forth. And and so um, it, I think every every one of these issues, like if we're, if we're you know engaging something in, in, in science, we got to look at it on its own merit and try to figure it out and determine. Okay, well, how did then how then does this relate to what Scripture says? Uh, you know, obviously God's word is truth. And God's word, I think, um, should be our guiding principle. The problem is, it gets back to interpretations. We're yeah. interpreting God's word, and so we we've got to be careful not to make our interpretation of God's word on the same par as the truth of God's word. Mm. Yeah, I think that's very true. And because now I'm very pro science, don't take this the wrong way. But throughout history, you know, what was thought to be 
one one ages theory became another theory ages you know conjecture it, it's it seems like it's always changing you know, and a lot of it has to do with the you know with the whole uh, parameter of what science is new discoveries made all the time but um I like that. I, I think that, you know, as, as Frank Turk always says, you know, science doesn't tell us anything scientists do, so the data is what informs. And so um, mm-hmm. I, I think you make a good point there of, about, tam- you know, uh, filtering that through uh, a biblical yeah, I think, worldview. I think even uh, just, I think Jay Warner Wallace even makes the, makes the statement that, um, you know, you can have one set of data, and depending on what uh, how you look at it, you can come to two different outcomes. Um, meaning, he had one that would be, uh, you know, this person did it, and then the next person, you know, next person looks at it, next next detective looks at it and says, this person didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a, it's an interpretation, yeah. So now, in the third chapter, uh, you examine the role that apologetics plays into uh, shaping of a worldview. So, is there a mm-hmm. biblical f- defense to be made for the practice of apologetics, and can anyone be an apologist? Yeah, I think that's a that's a that's a great question. And you know, uh, we have our flagship verse, right? First uh, Peter three sixteen. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, but the first part of that, right? Set apart Christ as Lord, right? That that that's where we start, and then always be ready to give that defense. Now, yeah. the funny thing about this passage is that is spoken to a group of people who are in the midst of persecution, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. <laughs> So it's 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 not how we normally imagine apologetics here in the uh, United States or in the Western context, um, but 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 the idea is to give that um, apologia, the defense, right? And um, but we're to do that with gentleness and kindness, mm-hmm. and I think that's always got to be at the heart of, of how we engage others. Um, and mm-hmm. so so that's our flagship verse, uh, but. Uh, we see apologetics all throughout the scriptures. You see it with the prophets uh, when they're confronting these these false gods, so to speak. You know, um, you know, you have Elijah and the the prophets of Baal, right? And and, and then you have like in Exodus, uh, the you know God's mighty acts in a sense are a it, it's a form of apologetics. Uh, you know, God is is showing that He's the one true God. Uh, but then you get into the New Testament and you see examples with uh, Jesus, right? Uh, and you see it with Peter in the Acts sermons. You see it with Paul. Paul is a very, I, I think, a, a brilliant example uh, for us of how we are to do apologetics. Mm. Uh, it, it, he's a good case study in methodology. Um, oh, you see him. He's going to the, the temples or I mean, he's going to the synagogues, not temples, the synagogues. And he's uh, reasoning. Uh, from the scriptures with the Jews, he's using scripture, he's using uh, prophecy, and uh, so forth. Uh, but then when you get into Acts 17, and he's he's in Athens, right? Uh, he's there. Uh, he's interacting with the, uh, the Stoic philosophers, uh, the Epicureans, and the pagans who are all there in, in Athens. And he, you know, he's observing, he's looking around at their objects of worship. And then he builds this bridge with them. And it's interesting, when you work your way through Acts 17, you can see where he's hitting at the Stoics, uh, who were, they were pantheistic. You know, they, they had a sort of a pantheistic materialism. 
Uh, then you have the Epicureans who thought, well, yeah, there's probably gods, but they're far off. They don't want anything to do with us. Uh, and then you have the pagans who are, you know, building these idols. And, and Paul is contrasting the true God with all of these different conceptions of what God is like. Uh, it's pretty, again, it's, it's a good um, case study of, of seeing apologetic methodology and the difference in how he interacted and engaged with the Jews of his time and then interacted with uh, the pagans and the Stoics and the Epicureans. Um, but you see that Paul ends his address in Acts 17 by giving evidence. He, he talks about the resurrection. And, and, and so you, you see all these different examples in Scripture. Um, and, and so you, you also ask, well, is apologetics for everyone? Yes, it's for everyone. I think the misconception we have is we people think that we need to be like William Lane Craig or <laughs> J.P. Moreland or you know some of these these uh, guys. I, I always like to uh, in my um, introduction to apologetics class, I, I have this uh, PowerPoint slide where I put up four different vehicles. You know, one is a monster truck, <laughs> one is a you know like a Corvette or you know a really nice. Uh, car sports car then i have another sports car and then i have a mazda uh mazda 5 uh wagon right and, and i say you know this is how we should think of apologetics right okay so you've got this monster truck that's people like william lane craig you know they're going into the debates and they're just like you know they're they're uh interacting with everyone uh, you know just rolling over the competitions and a lot of people think that would be the grave diggers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the grave digger, right. Uh, and then you have the sports car, you know, really smooth. Maybe a Greg Kokel or something like that, you know. And then you have this Mazda wagon, which happens to be my actual car. <laughs> this is more like me. And so when you think of apologetics here, it's, it, you know, I it's those interactions that you have daily with people, whether it's unbelievers or people within the church. And I think an often neglected group of people uh, that um, we forget about are the church. Mm. People have doubts. Uh, oh, people yeah. within the church, uh, you know, apologetics helps to bolster their faith. It helps them to see that what they believe is secure and, and it's true. And, and, and I think that, um, you know, Apologetics is 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 for anyone who's interested in giving that defense, and, and actually, we're all commanded to give that defense. Yep. It's not just the hey, consider this, but it's 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 for all of us. Um, uh, you know, we have to be ready um, in season and out. So, Many people may not know this, but Curtis is a race car driver. Oh no, <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm a crew chief. <laughs> well, you used to race cars though. Well, I used to race, yeah, we used to race motocross, but yeah, so, yep. <laughs> yeah, you used to get but pictures yeah, of, of them in the pits. Uh, well, you yeah. build the cars, don't you, Curtis? Yep, 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 <laughs> been doing that, yep. Yeah, so we had a podcast just recently where we were talking about that apologetics needs to even kind of filter into the church to almost have a uh a apologetic ministry that's basically walking alongside the pastors and walking alongside um anybody who may have those kind of questions that then the the pastor still can you know answer and do those things but have somebody there to 
basically bolster up uh, the pastor or be able to uh, take on some of those apologetic needs um, that some of the some of the uh, church needs. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, you think about. Uh, I think pastors need to be uh, using apologetic strategies in their sermons and their teaching. Um, I, I think youth pastors need to to engage in apologetics. Um, but you know, apologetics is also, uh, in, I, I guess, intricately linked to both discipleship and evangelism. Mm -hmm. I mean, you think about discipleship in the sense of helping believers overcome doubts that they might have or helping believers uh, wrestle with certain intellectual issues, trying to make sense of, of what the faith is all about. Um, and, and, and also then uh, for the uh, evangelism, you know, it, it's a tool that we use. Uh, you know, none of us really win a person to Christ. It's the Spirit who wins mm -hmm. the person to right. Christ. But the Spirit uses um, our arguments uh, to, to maybe um, break down intellectual barriers and so forth. And so, so it's both uh, used in discipleship and in evangelism. And, and uh, I, I think one of the things I want to hint at, because, you know, the, the whole point of the book is, well, you know, how does theology then relate to apologetics? Well, it relates to apologetics in the sense that you have to have really good theology you have to know what it is you believe and why mm -hmm. you believe it. And so those two things go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. and, and so it's it's a part of the person's formation as well. And, and so that means being able to, uh, I, I guess, uh, learn to dismiss what is false teaching and, and so forth. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. And, and that kind of leads us into the next uh the next question and this i know for some people becomes kind of a frightening aspect of worldview studies about um the fourth chapter describes the confrontation of false views and and um for some people they think that this may be a confrontational type of thing um for others, I've seen this as an excuse to be confrontational, quite honestly. But how is the best way to defend Christianity against false views while also maintaining that winsome spirit that you mentioned previously? Yeah, I mean, I think it all comes back to intention. Why are you doing this in the first place? Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people, they do apologetics or they do a theology. I mean, I've, I've been in those discussions where it's gotten heated and it's all about winning the argument, and it's all about, you know, uh, you know I, 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 I've heard the analogy of getting another uh, notch in the soul-winning belt or something like that. Uh, you know, that's not what it's about at all. Uh, apologetics is ultimately about helping a person come to Jesus. Amen. It, it's about helping a person see the truthfulness uh, of our Lord and Savior. And, and, and so... Um, Sometimes uh, one of the most loving things you can do for an individual is to point out those areas which uh, they might err in their theology. Uh, you know, the whole idea of guarding against false teachers, Paul talks about this in the pastoral epistles. Um, you know, first, Second Timothy, we see it, and I, I think you see it coming up in, in, in the Thessalonians texts and, and so forth, where people have engaged in false teaching, and we've got to be able to stand up for the truth. Mm. Now, uh, I, I think that we don't stand up for the truth um, just uh, 
how do I want to put this? You know, we don't do it just for the sake of the truth, but we really want people to to enter into this relationship. And so for the sake of the person, really, and and part of it is we want to correct that false teaching that they might have. Mm. Yeah. It, uh, you know, kind of looking at it, if, if a person um, has, has a good, solid hold on their theology and has actually engaged with some conversations uh, apologetically, um, really any question that really gets thrown at, at a person that's, that's somewhat solid there doesn't throw them off. It allows them to be able to um, maybe track through that a little easier. And also um, it also allows them to kind of break down that barrier between being able to relate to a person um, if they're solid in those things, because they can, they can understand or, or pull them along. Right. Yeah, that's, that's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, for, for people who, who are solid in their theology, they're going to be able to, to recognize things when they're, when they're pointed out, um, you know, and, and, and so, you know, even thinking about those passages, and, and there's quite a few in there that, you know, when you see someone who's got in sin even, you know, you're to, to correct them gently, right? Uh, the whole purpose is not to, like, uh, say, uh, look at you, you dirty rat, you know, you sinner. <laughs> uh, and, and, it's, it, and, and the same thing, I, I think it is with, like, uh, you know, bad theology. You know, we, we should restore people gently. We should seek to to uh, help them discover the truth, you know, our aim isn't to just point our fingers at them and, and tell them how awful they are because they, you know, they've denied, um, you know, a certain interpretation of the Trinity or something like that, uh, you know, but, but, but we do want to, to uh, uh, pass on the, the uh, teachings that, that's been handed down to us through the scriptures, and, and we want to, to have uh, pure doctrine. That's really what sets us apart, you know, in, in so many ways. Um, uh, true, uh, true, true practice, right, and true doctrine, and, and both mm -hmm. of those things are not isolated from one another. Mm -hmm. You know, Dr. Kimball, we, Curtis and I have been talking in previous podcasts about how people throw the heresy card out uh, over the... Yeah. The simplest thing, and it, it may not even necessarily be heretical. It may be heterodox, but not necessarily heretical. Where, where do you draw the line between orthodoxy and heresy? Yeah, that's a really difficult question, um, and and I think that um, I really do uh, appreciate the creeds for what they do. Um, you know, I'm Baptist, so, you know, we're, we're confessional and all that, but uh, I do like the creeds in the sense that they do kind of give us guardrails for thinking about what the church is considered to be orthodox, and and uh, at least the, 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 the first major creeds, right, you know, Chalcedon, Nicaea, right. uh, the Apostles' Creed, and so forth. I think, I think those are good frameworks uh, for helping us to see um, uh, orthodoxy. Um, but, uh, again, there are some things, you know, wh where do you, where do you fit, uh, certain views like openness, uh, open theology, right? Um, who 
aren't, and people actually misconceive what they're actually doing. Some people say, well, they're denying that God has omniscience. No, they're not actually denying that God has omniscience. They're denying that God has foreknowledge of future free contention features, right? Um, which is, you know, I, you guys must have uh, just uh, talked about that last the last podcast. Uh, but but uh, we, we hammered it pretty hard. Aspect. <laughs> uh, now, uh, I am I am no open theist, nor am I the son of an open theist. But but I will say that that you. You know, one of the things you have to do is be charitable to the, your interlocutors, and so um, I think I think there's some problems with open theism personally. Um, you know, uh, but at the same time, um, I, I don't know that I would would call an open theist. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how far I would go in saying they're heretical in right. that sense. Um, I think they're they're wrong, uh, and 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 there's certainly problematic uh, problems with with their uh, understanding of divine omniscience. I just, you know, I can't get around some of the things like what, what I see in scripture of foreknowledge. I mean, it's pretty clear to me. Um, uh, but, um, you know, I, I think that's, that's an example of one of those, I think where it's, it's, it, you have to be careful in, in what you say, you know, throwing out the heresy card. Oh, yeah. Um, a, another one would be, you know, just some, something like, um, uh, one is Pentecostalism, right? Um, where I, I think in, in 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 that case they're denying uh, something essential to orthodoxy, right? Uh, but at the other, on the other hand, they're not denying Jesus. Which when we read First John, one of the things that it says is, you know, they deny that Jesus came in the flesh, mm. right? Mm. Well, they're not denying that, but they're denying a certain understanding of the doctrine of the Trinity, which goes against the creedal statements you know, the orthodox understanding. And so, so certainly, you know, I, I, I think that that's one of those areas where, you know, I think, I think you have to kind of um, say they're denying something that's orthodox there. Does, does that help to kind of give some, yeah. some clarity? Yeah. You know, I'll be honest, whenever I first started the apologetics venture, in fact, this ministry started back in 2012, I'll be the first to admit that I was throwing heresy cards left and right but but i've really drawn back from that to the point that you know it it has to be something in my opinion like what you're saying it has to be to to the point of denying the the essentials of the faith particularly the right. the incarnation of christ or something mm-hmm. of that sort before i'll even use that term right. these days right yeah, I mean, and, and uh, you know, I mean, I certainly, I think uh, th- there are some key ones. The deity of Jesus, yeah. I, I think the Trinity is yep. another one. Um, uh, you know, uh, so so those are certainly ones that I, I would um, uh, high hold. I would hold high up in my, my triage there, right? Um, you know, and, and uh, uh, being here at Liberty, you know, uh, meal pre-trib. But for me, that's not one of those hills I'm going to die on. Um, yeah. I'm not going to break fellowship over that particular right. issue. Uh, you know, days of creation, that kind of thing. Those, those are they're, they're important. I mean, they're all aspects of of, of scripture and theology. Um, but those are certainly ones that we should. I, I, I don't think we should break fellowship over. No, I agree. Uh, so, and, and I think. Um, you know, I think we're going to be surprised, uh, you know, when we see our uh, all millennial friends up in heaven and our, you know, uh, pre, pre, you know, 
uh, pre-Raph, all these guys, you know, so, so, uh, you know, there, there are certainly differences here and, um, but, but there's certainly that triage. And I think that there are certain, certain doctrines that are certainly more fundamental to the Christian faith and to be labeled a Christian that one must hold to, uh, than other other uh, peripheral, I don't want to say peripheral, but other uh, um, issues that are not as central. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. So, so the fifth chapter engages the issue of doubt. Is doubt normal for the Christian? And if so, how does one com- combat doubt uh, when it inevitably becomes? Yeah, I mean, uh, there are different kinds of doubt and uh you know you have the intellectual doubt and then you have emotional doubt and and there's been uh you know a whole slew of different um uh i guess categories of doubt that people have come up with but i think you could look at those two as your basic uh, kinds of doubt there and so intellectual doubt generally it's just when people have questions that uh you know that are pretty much intellectual in nature uh you know they have some kind of intellectual question that they're wrestling with and they just can't get their mind around it and they're trying to figure it out. And, and for an intellectual doubter, uh, you know, you, you give them the evidence, you show them, uh, you show them uh, what it is. And, and usually they're kind of fine with it after they, they get the, uh, the facts all straightened out. Um, but emotional doubters, on the other hand, uh, generally it, it's not, it's really at the heart of it's not really intellectual. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they ask a lot of things like, well, what if, what if, uh, uh, you know, you could give them a response, but what if, what if this happens and what if that happens? And, yeah. uh, you know, so the, it's really more of an emotional thing. Well, I, or I really even think sometimes why like did. I'm sorry, it didn't mean interrupt. Sometimes well, what, it, yeah. like why did something, something happen or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think that's right. Um, uh, that that gets back to the problem of evil right yeah. there. You know, why did God allow this? You know, uh, because really they're suffering or they have some kind of deep emotional pain that they're wrestling mm-hmm. with and, and they can't make heads or tails out of it, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that um, that that's part of it there. Uh, so, so I think um, with emotional doubters, you got to take a different tactic. You can just keep, at, you know, you could just keep giving them all the answers all day long, uh, but generally that's not going to satisfy them. And I, and I think a lot of times um, people who wrestle with emotional doubts do so because they have um, improper views of, of what God is like, or uh, they may be telling themselves some kind of lie. You know, they may be telling themselves a lie. And, and so in those cases, um, you know, emotions, I think, are deeply connected to our beliefs. And if we have a false belief about something, then our emotions will react in regard to that belief that we have. And, uh, you know, I always point this out. Well, if you see something happen to a little child or you hear about something like incest or, or rape or something like that, it just sends all kinds of, of you know, emotional response to that because deep down we know that is wrong and we know it's it's an awful thing that's happened why because our emotions and our beliefs are deeply connected now if we have a misbelief or a false belief about something then it seems to me that sometimes um um, our emotions are going to act out in those those um false beliefs 
Um, I can give an example. When I was uh, younger, um, I constantly had this um, doubt of, of losing my salvation, you know, and, um, and as I began working through that, as I began reading on it and learning more about God and His grace, my beliefs actually began to change. And as my beliefs began to change, my emotional response began to change. It went from fear of losing my salvation to more of gratitude for the Lord. And so I think that one of the ways in which we help an emotional doubter is helping them to recognize the lies that they have in their life and you know what they're telling themselves and then changing um, changing those beliefs that they have uh, and then replacing it with the truth hmm. well said so the sixth chapter discusses the need for one becoming to become a living sacrifice how does one mm-hmm. become a living sacrifice, and what relation do the Great Commandments and Great Commission hold in this practice? I think this gets back to what we talked about earlier on, this idea that everything belongs to the Lord. And, you know, uh, we're under the Lordship of Christ. And, and when we think about uh, the Great Commandment, and the, the Great Commandment, right, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as yourself— um, it, it gets back to this uh, this idea that um, everything uh, really um, belongs to Him and in who I am, and so giving my heart over to Him, and so being willing to live out this life day in and day out, um, and, and really just um, giving everything over to the Lord in that, and then loving our neighbor. Uh, you know, we think about what Paul says that if you uh, it, the whole law is summed up in this command to love your neighbor as yourself. Um, if we really love our neighbor, we're not going to kill them, right? <laughs> we're not murder them. If we really love our neighbor, we're not going to lie, you know, because love is not selfish. Love is other seeking. It, yeah. It's self-giving in, in, in the very essence of what love is. It's looking out for the good of the other person. And, and, and so um, it, it's that inter, uh, well, it's, it's that, um, both of these here, you know, loving God and loving neighbor, and 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 how we're to to uh, give our lives over to 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 God in that sense. Amen. Isn't that interesting, though? Um, when you look at uh, every worldview filter, no matter which one you look at, humanistic one or or however you wanted to look at all these other worldviews that are that we're that we're seeing pop up in our culture today, they all have one element. And that's loving your neighbor. They all have that element within it, but they 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 don't have the Christian or the biblical filter where we love God first, then allows us to love our neighbor, and in that we get a proper proper order of of mm-hmm. knowing that we're not we're we're helping or we're loving on somebody not because. We just want to love on them. We're loving on them because we're told to by God. We we love God that, that much that we that we're actually stepping out into that world, being part of it. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I, and and I think that I really like how Augustine put it that we're to love God with our affections and then to love our neighbor with our actions. Uh, oh, yeah. and, and there's some some real truth to that, right? Uh, but but. Even in loving our neighbor, it's not just um, it's not just affection, right? 
it's mm-hmm. not just it's just having an affection towards the other person or uh, you know something that's subjective, but but it's it's seeking the good for the other. And so, well, how do we know what the good is? And it gets back to what you're saying, Curtis, you know, uh, going back to the Word of God, going back to Scripture, and, and understanding what God's understanding of goodness is for that person. And so real human flourishing takes place when people are living out how God designed them to be. Mm-hmm. And so as believers, we are to to love our neighbor, we're to... Um, look and seek out for their good to promote flourishing in their lives and and ultimately to direct them back to God. That, that's kind of uh, the, the idea there. And, and so um, when, when we truly love our neighbor uh, or love anyone, right, it's, it's the giving of the self. But it also, I think there's this making room for the, the other in your own self, which is kind of hard for us to do. Sometimes you, you hear the, the, the person who's often the martyr, right, uh, constantly giving but never receiving. <laughs> and, and that's not really how God designed us to be either. Love does have that reciprocal element to yeah. it. Um, uh, sometimes it's not always given to so We have to be willing not to to get that reciprocation back. But but true love in its deepest sense is one that is giving but also receiving from the other. It's that mutual looking out for the good of the other person, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and uh, sadly, um, because of the fallen world in which we live and we often don't get that reciprocation. Um, but, but to me, that's where the deepest love in all reality uh, exists in the, in the, in the intertrinitarian relationship between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but God designed us, I think, to experience that same kind of deep love where it's that, that receiving and giving, you know, right. uh, element there. So, Amen. So I, I hate to combine the last four chapters because they're really good, but the last four <laughs> The last four chapters describe the importance of building character, making disciples, growing in worship, and integrating faith. Uh, To simplify the last four chapters, how can believers integrate their theological worldview into practical, everyday living? Yeah, so uh, one of the things that I really like for my students to do is to... um, I call it, I borrowed this from Kevin Van Hooser, but he has a, a really wonderful book called Everyday Theology. Mm. And so I have them do an everyday theology project where they will watch a TV show or listen to music, right. and then they have to critique it based on the Christian worldview. Mm. So they're to identify the worldview that's represented in the work, uh, they're to look for theological themes, and then compare and contrast that with the Christian worldview. And, you know, the thing is, you look and, 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 and um, uh, all, all throughout society, there's, there's beauty, there's goodness, and so forth, but we also see fallenness and, and how fallenness kind of reaches uh, every aspect of the created order. I mean, uh, the whole, all sociological, ecological, uh, all these different spheres have been affected by sin. And we see that come out clearly in pop culture. We see it in movies. We see it in TV. We see it in music. And, and, and I think we can learn a lot um, 
of how unbelievers think, you know, uh, by by listening to the songs that they write or watching the shows that they, you know, the TV shows they make and so forth. So that's one area that we can, we can um, you know, do some integration, right? Try to think theologically about these things. Um, but, but um, you know, maybe you're not a, a preacher or a, you know, or a minister or a, a college teacher. So how can you integrate these things? Well, I mean, an obvious one is like the theological principle of the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and how far reaching this one principle makes its way into every sphere of life. I mean, okay. think about who are you interacting with all the time? People, right? Uh, people who are made in God's image. And we see in James uh, 3, 9 and, and Genesis 9, 6, um, that people have dignity and worth because they're made in the image and likeness of God. You know, Genesis 9, 6, you know, you're not to murder another person because they've been made in God's image and likeness. And then um, in James 9 or 3, 9, we don't curse them because they've been made in God's likeness and so forth. Uh, so so uh, these two passages tell us that, that we have um, dignity and worth as human beings who are made in God's image and likeness. And so, if you think about business, right? If you're engaging in business, you don't take advantage of people. You know, you 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 treat these people fairly and so forth. Mm. Um, and, and so, that's just one principle. And there are multitude of principles in Scripture mm. uh, that we can apply in our everyday living. And so it's not, it's not, again, it's not just meant for uh, those who engage in some kind of vocational ministry, but everyone um, needs to think Christianly and theologically about their various vocations. That's good. Amen. So we that, could talk about that all day long, you know, there's, there's so much more that we could talk about. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, from my undergrad, I went to a different school, and um, I went to Gardner-Webb down in Bowling Springs, North Carolina, and they had a class I took. It was a business class, but it was talking about looking at business from a Christian worldview. And I would love to say that I've seen a lot of businesses adopt that, but I haven't. But I think to myself, having gone through that course, what would it look like if more businesses did adopt yeah, those practices, those ethical practices stemming from a Christian worldview. What would that look like? And I, I dare say it would be a lot better than a lot of corporations that we see. Not that there aren't good ones out there. There are. But uh, I think if mm-hmm. more businesses and organizations adopted some of those principles, it would be a whole lot better than what we see. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, I mean uh, – you, you, you see more of a Darwinistic perspective in yeah. a lot of business more than you see a Christian perspective. Uh, you know, uh, survival of the fittest. Yeah. <laughs> it's a dog-eat-dog world, you know. Nature red and tooth and claw, you know, that kind of thing. More so than seeing that as an image bearer. And, you know, the purpose isn't to take advantage of them, but it's to, to really, um, you know, even business practices for the betterment of society. Uh, for for the flourishing of society, how how can your business then bring about flourishing? And and so that's a question I think a lot of business owners could ask themselves. Yeah. Um, yep. Very good stuff. So, Dr. Campbell, last question for you. The, the and again, we want to thank you for being on with us. This has been a joy and a delight. 
the church has faced a lot of problems in recent years. We see we're seeing declining attendance in many churches. Uh, we're seeing even many pastors across the board uh, leaving the ministry. Do you hold out any hope for the modern church to make an impact on the culture? If so, how might that happen, and what would that look like? <laughs> Not like loading the question at all. <laughs> <laughs> well. <laughs> Uh, I, I, I uh, you know, I think we should always hold out hope. I mean, you think about Jeremiah and the, the captives who were taken away to Babylon. And what does he say? Pray for the peace of the city. Pray, yeah. pray for the city, the flourishing of the city. Why? Because you're in the city. Right. And yeah. and and, you know, uh, even what Paul says, pray for the kings and, and you know, those over you, the authorities and so forth. Um, we, we should really desire that. And, and I think we should hold out hope for um, our, our culture, uh, you know, here in the United States and people who are elsewhere. Yeah, we should, we should pray for the peace. We should pray for the flourishing. Um, but how do we get there? How, how do we, how do we hope for this difference? How do we make this difference? Well, I think, um, we can learn a lot by looking at the early Christians because in, in many ways they were in a context such as ours, probably more, uh, obviously, I think not just probably, but more um, hostile than what oh, yeah. we are experiencing here in America and, and Western culture. Um, but they had two primary angles uh, that they used in in uh, transforming society. Uh, one, you have the apologists who are writing these apologies to to the Roman government, saying, "Look, you know, we're not." as evil as people are making us out to be. And here's the reason why, you know, we hear these accusations and th these aren't true. Here's the reason why. So they were given these apologies. They were, they were really given that defense on the intellectual level. So I think we need still need to engage there. The second uh, way in which we do this is through practical everyday living out our faith in Jesus Christ. Um, you know the what what they did in making a difference. They were taking care of the widows and the orphans. Absolutely. I mean, you know, you think about the children who were left on the streets if they were unwanted, and who was taking these children in? It was the, it was the, it was it were the Christians, right? The Christians were taking these children in and raising them and, and giving them hope and so forth, and, and and so therefore they were living out that practical uh, faith, uh, and and. It makes a difference, and I think that would be my message for us uh, to confront on both ends, to to engage in the academic sphere, uh, in, in, in giving our apologies, uh, and uh, then living out day after day, faithfully following Jesus Christ, and, and giving our, our hearts um, uh, fully and, and devotionally to Him and loving our neighbors. Uh, and loving the way that Scripture teaches, taking care of the widows and orphans, taking care of our own relatives, um, taking care of the poor and so forth, uh, you know, uh, standing up for those injustices that we mm -hmm. see in society. Um, mm -hmm. th those are all a part of, of how we can engage. And, and I think that can certainly make a difference. Mm -hmm. As Dr. Falwell Sr. used to say, if it's Christian, it ought to be better. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, I think yeah. right. practically showing forth our Christianity in, in all walks. I think that is a very good point. 
as well as you mentioned, you know, dealing with the academic side as well, dealing with the, the yeah. apologetic side. Curtis, any concluding questions? Yep. No, I I was just uh, I was just gonna actually just say when you're talking about apology when 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 you were just talking about that uh, you were you were def- you were describing it as giving a defense not not apologizing right. for it that's but right. actually yeah. <laughs> but actually saying hey wait a minute that's not who we are this is who we are this is what we believe and, and allowing that to sit on that table allowing them to then be able to take that in correct that's right we're not saying we're sorry for our faith uh we're giving the reasons for our faith that's right um, i yep. i was using the word in its classical sense there yeah correct yep yep <laughs> yep i just know there's a lot of people that that i know that listen to it that would be like why are you saying you're sorry <laughs> that's right. no that's not it <laughs> if i had a nickel yep. for every time i heard that i'd be a millionaire <laughs> <laughs> yeah Yep. Yeah. We've had it on well, with us Dr. Ronnie Campbell. Uh, his book is For Love of God, an Invitation to Theology. Mm-hmm. Be sure to go get a copy. It's published by Emeth. Am I saying that right? Emeth Press? That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an academic publisher for Asbury uh, Seminary. Awesome. And so uh, they're, uh, yeah, they're smaller press, but uh, yeah, they were very kind in giving me uh, the opportunity to write the book. So. So be sure to go get your copy of For Love of God, An Invitation to Theology by Dr. Ronnie Campbell. And so we'll turn it over to Curtis at this time. All right. Well, there you go. There's Ronnie Campbell. Dr. Ronnie Campbell has an interview. And uh, go check that book out. Anyway, we here at Bellator Christi want to thank you for spending time together with us. And we value that time. Our prayers that this podcast helps stretch your mind and is a place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and as a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. And until next time, Brian and I say, Soldier on, friends. listening to the Bellator Christie podcast brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. 
If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. Do you have a question about the Bible, theology, or apologetics that you've always wanted to ask but never felt comfortable asking? If so, we want to encourage you to head over to bellatorchristi.com and submit your question on the Submit a Question link. Your question will be reviewed and may be featured on a future article or podcast. Remember, the only dumb question is the one unasked. So go over to bellatorchristi.com now and submit your question.